Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Jason Michelli. He's a United Methodist pastor from Alexandria, Virginia. He's the author of a great book called Cancer is Funny, Keeping Faith in Stage Serious Chemo. And he's the co-host of the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast. He's also a friend and just a really good guy. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Jason Michelli. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Not the first time we've talked on I was going to say on air, but it's just on virtual air or something. On air or in person. But the not first time fresh I'm giving air. To, it's not fresh air. It's stale air. This is the first time you've been on Give and Take. You are my 25th guest. I, I think that's good. Now, if you've slept yeah, it's with a century mark. 24 before me, then it's going to change the situation. You know, it's funny. Alec Baldwin said that like acting for him was like sex when he was younger he's like you know you had sex with anybody you know i do any movie he's like now i'm older you know i'm a little more discreet you're a little more screaming you're older you have sex with and you know what parts you'll do so well that's because he's he's done a lot of movies that like he would have had to get up and wipe himself off after yeah that's that's definitely the key so it's a good he's a great analogy. actor he is a good actor him like him and glengarry glenn ross like that's my perfect like my favorite role that he's in it's so have good you, have you uh heard his podcast no it's it's uh it's excellent he does it like every other week he does interviews and it's excellent i mean he's excellent i've read david, that his memoir is good too yeah you know it's called nevertheless <laughs> you know why do you know how the you know the origin of the title i don't so basically there's a story about this british actor or this british theater and they the guy comes out and he's announcing that the main actress is ill and so the part will be played by the understudy my wife and my lady, so and the somebody yells, "Your wife's a bleep," and the guy just stops. Nevertheless, that's funny. So that's Baldwin's memoir. Nevertheless, yeah. So listeners can't hear the hovel that you're standing in right now. That's got egg crate foam all over it, and it's uh, completely everywhere. dark. And if if years from now I discover that you're living in some sort of Cormac McCarthy the Road apocalyptic existence, I would not be surprised. It looks like I'm paranoid, and I'm not, but it does give you that vibe. It looks like I'd have emergency rations down here. It'd be like buying gold from William Devane. Like from, you ever see that Fox <laughs> News? Every commercial for that is William Devane, like selling gold, like selling gold at the golf course or selling uh, gold, gold at the voting booth. Did you see that stuff? Jimmy Baker is selling like buckets of apocalyptic food now? That's like his new ministry. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I like that. Because they're into that. they're like Lowe's, like hardware, like bucket. Fulls of of like rations. That's big. That's big business now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's big. Jason, you are the author of Cancer's Funny. <laughs> is that like old news now? Because it's like, how old is it? The book now. It came out uh, right before Christmas, so it's not that old. I mean, talking about yourself gets old after a while. Um, really? It is interesting. Like the more I've talked about myself in relation to the book, the less I have been talking about myself in the pulpit. So you're just like done. Are, are people like, thank God, or like, more about you? <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't think people listen to every stupid conversation I have about myself in the book. But you know, I do. I do find myself getting weary of talking about myself. Um, yeah, but that's okay. 
for All right, well, we there's can talk a about season. Someone else. Oh, we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I didn't mean to shit on your topic. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, no, uh, no, it's a great book, though. You know, if people haven't read it yet, I mean, I, it's excellent. It, it is funny. Although I teased you before, it's a big setup. Like you say, I'm, your cancer's funny. You're the funny guy. A lot of pressure. It, it does set up an expectation of being funny all the time that I find hard to meet, especially when the questions that people ask me aren't like queuing up, uh, you know, an easy laugh. I found that. But you are the best reader of my book I have found. I love your book. I, I love your book. I think it's a great book. And you're, you're a great writer. And I think a lot of interesting, constructive theology. In it. I mean, it's it's not just a memoir. I mean, but it is, you do a lot of creative, constructive theology. In it. I try, I mean, that's, um, that's what I'm trying to do in the book is that, you know, I want it to be a little book of theology to see if in the midst of suffering and possible death, the language of the faith will, you know, do its work. Um, and I, and for the most part, I found that it did that, you know, I was reconvinced uh, about my faith. Um, and now it's funny now that we're coming out of, you know, Eastertide and Lent. Um, I've been thinking more and more that I wish I had done more with the idea of death as the enemy um, that we get in the gospel stories. Um, especially because I remember when I first got sick, um, my boss who works for the bishop, uh, came to me and he said that, you know, he thought I was, I was, uh, I had fallen down with this cancer because the enemy with a capital E, uh, was trying to, uh, you know, frustrate my good gospel work. And at the time I thought that was incredibly naive and mythological and superstitious, um, and now I'm at the point where I can appreciate that language. Is now you're like, I'm a big biblical. enough shit for the kingdom. I'm like, a, I'm a threat. I'm a threat. You know what I mean? Like, say, like, it's not, I'm not just like, I don't have some junior demon on me. Like, uh, screw table others. I got a full on, they're, they're trying to take you down. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's Dave just... Fitch, Dave Fitch's health is great. You know what I mean? Scott McKnight, <laughs> those guys, you know what I mean? They're not a threat. I, I don't know. David Fitch looks like a walking skeleton sometimes. So who knows? But I, yeah, I mean, the language struck me as is really kind of old-fashioned, but now I feel like maybe that's like the language that I need to recover as a Christian, especially because like once you take out that third actor, then so much of what Christians talk about in terms of salvation uh and, and God's wrath and sin, you know, it gets worked out, you know, from God onto us rather than this third party um being God's enemy. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's probably too heavy of a topic for you right now. But no, but, but, isn't, but isn't there something to the fact, like the eternity in our, in our hearts thing, that it seems like we can we can conceive of ourselves as experiencing enduring subjectivity, mm-hmm. like, you know, mm-hmm. and other creatures probably can't do that quite the way humans can, and maybe why death is such a, a an obstacle, an mm-hmm. existential threat at the core of our being. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. you, it, it, you know, it's like uh, Becker's book, The Denial of Death. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, because, you know, I think Becker argues, right, the, the, the problem in the modern period is, you know that you're going to die. And then if the sun burns out, even any cultural legacy you're going to, you know, lay like, like a book or a podcast or, you know, posterity or children or whatever, like, it's all going to be done. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's, that's a downer. Have you read The Last Policeman? No. It's a great mystery uh so it's almost like a sci-fi noir, um, and I think it's like a giant asteroid is uh, on a trajectory towards Earth, and so they've been able to pinpoint exactly when it will make impact, and they don't know exactly where. Um, and so 
you know, civilization starts to unfold as you would expect in different ways. But it's this story about this um, this guy who I think got promoted to be a detective because so many people quit their jobs uh, in light of the impending end. And he's just, you know, he's investigating what looks like a suicide, um, but he doesn't think it is. And so this like this one life is so valuable that he's like committed to his ordinary life you know, in the midst of death coming to everyone. And it's, it's a great, it's a great, great story. Sounds like a real up, up, upbeat. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a happy, you know, happy story. I, I like it. So you also are the host <laughs> of Crackers and Grape Juice. <laughs> it's a happy story. Now moving on to, so you're also the host of Crackers and Grape Juice. Yes. I, yeah, I started that about a year ago this month, actually, um, as a way of kind of continuing conversation with my friends. Um, because when I was on medical leave with cancer and, and thought I was going to die, I realized I'd let some of my friendships kind of fray, um, you know, because I work on the weekends and it's easy to let things slide. And so I wanted to keep in touch with them. Um, and I figured a podcast would be an easy way to force myself to be in conversation with them. And so now we are your primary competition, I think, Scott Jones. I, I like that. I like that. And competition <laughs> you are. You're, you're, and how many cooks are in the kitchen right now? Uh, <laughs> you got a lot. You got a lot of voices on that podcast. There's four of us. It's crackers because we're all four white dudes. Um, so two of them, uh, Tier and Taylor, came out of the church that I serve, and Morgan and I were like the two odd balls at InterVarsity Fellowship when we were first years at UVA. Um, we have nothing in common except that we had nothing in common with the other people that came to Ivy. Um, so we've known each other for quite a while. But you're the top dog of that podcast. Right? Oh, well, of course. Yeah. You're the captain of the team. <laughs> like, it's, everybody answers to you. They do answer to me, and they do all the work. Um, and I should take this opportunity to give you a shout-out for being the primary mentor of me and all things tech-related. Dude, I love your podcast, and I, I like what you do. I like your whole vibe. So, And I like talking about this stuff. I'm very geeky like that. Oh, just and not just like tech, though. Like You have an art to your conversational skill. Because uh, when we started out, we were like scripting questions and it was horribly robotic. Uh, and now we're actually earth shattering, listening to what the person in front of us on the screen is saying and responding in kind. Yeah, I can tell like when Terry Gross, um, I, you can tell in f Fresh Air when she's reading questions that somebody else wrote. Mm -hmm. Like you could, I mean, I, like I just know, you know, like I know you, if you listen for it, don't you find yourself listening for that now? I do. If, if someone's really engaged and you, you can really quickly tell, like, um, uh, if somebody, I'll tell you, man, this week, Howard Stern had Rachel Maddow on mm. and I was like, man, this is why he's the best interviewer in media. I mean, it was, it was so funny. He said to her, uh, he said, you know, your kid, my, he, I watch your show all the time, you know, and, uh, my kids were at dinner saying, gosh, dad, you're so smart. I said, you're goddamn right I am. It's, but I just watch your show, and then it's just it's just saying what you say to my kids. <laughs> yeah, Chris Matthews is, like, the worst because he doesn't listen to anything anyone says, and then he just starts monologuing. But I love him. He, I do. I love him, too. I, I, I think he does have a unique kind of style to his, uh, yeah. Hardball. Hey, hey, all right. Hey, look, yeah. huh, look at this guy. <laughs> um, so you're, okay, many things we could talk about, but one of the things that you're – you are at a United Methodist Church in the D.C. area. Mm -hmm. D.C. has changed a little bit since, <laughs> since January. Right? Since the so how, do you see, I mean, like, since the election of Donald Trump, because it, it's interesting, right, what's, that here's a guy that comes into office, and I guess this is a political operative or, you know, people in the establishment, their nightmare, somebody getting there that doesn't owe them. Mm-hmm. 
So is that have you seen that disrupt DC culture? I mean, you have a lot of DC sort of establishment types that guess floating around the congregation. Oh yeah, it's uh, so I've got a couple senators uh, in the congregation and lots of people who work in the White House and on the Hill. Um, you know, one of my good friends in the congregation um, runs a uh, conservative political ad company, and he spent an enormous amount of his own money trying to get any Republican but Donald Trump nominated. Um, and so it's so in D.C. especially, I think it's um, there are in my congregation normal, normal you know, establishment conservative Republicans um, who did not support Donald Trump. But see a Republican establishment as, you know, being good for their agenda and good for yeah, jobs of their friends. Um, and but like, they, I mean, that it's there's also this dynamic in the congregation, I've noticed, and in the community um, where you have people who I think rationalized their vote for Trump because of abortion or whatever issue um, and have uh, an implicit experience of guilt about it. And then that gets manifested as anger. And so I noticed in the weeks after the election, lots of people lashing out at anything they perceived as judgment. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and so the, and like you couple that with um, what I perceived as a lot of progressive self-righteousness going on, too. Um, and so you just had this um, cycle of antagonism going on. Um, and, and now, I mean, I was joking with, you know, a, a senator this past Sunday and I, I think they're just waiting for the sh the shoe to drop right now. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's it, it's not the, it's interesting because even if there's no collusion, it's just the cover up that kills you. I mean, it's mm -hmm. you know, it's the cover up that always gets you. It's got, got Nixon. I mean, it, it it really is fascinating. Well, they have like so many positions are unfilled. The the ones that are filled are being run by you know as though they were amateurs. Um, and it's. I think, you know, I had a friend who's a lobbyist tell me before the election that it didn't matter who occupied the White House, that the machinery of government would go on. And now <laughs> he said, maybe I was wrong about that. Although what is interesting, though, you know, maybe, I mean, continuing resolutions get passed. and so Tom Nichols, who had a podcast, he said the irony of electing an, an inexperienced, uneducated president that just doesn't know how government works is... People in the middle of the country kind of did this as an F you to the elites to throw mm -hmm. through the window kind of thing. But what's interesting is that his ineptitude might almost guarantee the status quo. Yeah. Because he can't really get anything done. And we'll just, bills will just continue. You know, those spending bills will get passed and there won't be anything. You know, we've seen it with, with the healthcare stuff. And it, like, it's just, I mean, the market is dipping now because I think people are worried he won't really be able to get anything done on taxes or regulation mm -hmm. in significant ways. And so, ironically, and it's, the F you to the system uh -huh. might have like put a flat line on the system. Well, and it's ironic that, you know, I mean, Donald Trump's managed to do the one thing Barack Obama couldn't do, and that's make Obamacare popular. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's this really weird thing. I mean, I, I have a, uh, another friend who's writing a book right now on the Trump voter, um, and he's just trying to like narrow it down to archetypes. Um, and so he's focusing on, I think it's like 70,000 people who voted in these handful of counties, mostly in Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, who voted for Obama and flipped to Trump, you know, and he said that like in interviewing them, like what he's, you know, found most often is that, you know, none of them had any illusions of Donald Trump's, you know, character or the validity of his claims to be a Christian. And none of them had any expectations that he would achieve any sort of policy initiatives. They just, uh, 
want, like, I mean, they wanted to say F you to the system and they were motivated by like evangelicals in particular were motivated by the fact that the same people who hate Donald Trump hate them. And it's yeah. like, and it's yeah. just this common animus. That's all that was motivating it. You're going to be able to say Merry Christmas again. You know, maybe, maybe he'll turn out to be like a Cyrus character, which is an interesting like thing. Cause like, I think Christians have to like, at least concede that like, that's possible. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I think that it's interesting. You're you're not a very ideological guy. <laughs> no. I mean, and I say that as a compliment. I mean, I, I mean that, and you you strike me as a guy who occupies the, the radical middle on a lot of things. Because I think nationalism is is the the most problematic idol for both conservative and progressive Christians. That I think, um, I mean, the church I serve was singing a verse from America every Sunday at every worship service when I got here. Um, so civil religion here is thick. Um, and then I noticed, like a lot of people noticed after the election that, you know, I think a lot of progressive Christians were, un, you know, unveiled as being more motivated primarily by their politics than by Jesus. Um, yeah. And yeah. so I think it's, I, I, I try to be non-ideological mostly because I think that ideology is, is such an idol for Christians in America. And theologically, I mean, you you are very orthodox, but you don't. I mean, I mean, your denomination, right? You're United Methodist, which mm-hmm. is a forgivable sin in my book. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, but there's some turmoil in the in the Methodist Church, right? A little bit. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I'm a United Methodist because when I was 17 and not turning out well, my mom one day was like, "We're going to church," and. You know, we went to the new church start that was down the road in our community, and it happened to be United Methodist Church. Um, so I don't know that I ever really kind of chose to be United Methodist. It's just that's where I started out, and like it's, you know, the clothes have been comfortable enough. I don't doesn't fit exactly, but um, and yeah, it's funny that you say that. You are, I would say, the most liturgically distinguished, <laughs> outfitted in, in any Methodist. <laughs> I would say in general among mainline Protestants, like I look at you and your clergy garb, like your robes, and you it's stylish. It's usually looks like a little Anglo Catholic, but not quite. It's usually a little tighter, a little sharper. A little tighter, yeah. I, you, I, I I like I mean I like your whole look. I mean it's very it's pious but 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 still a little edgy. Well there's nothing holy about wearing a potato sack that doesn't fit right. So and yeah, I like I, I want to like look like Neo. I want to look like Neo. Yeah, you do. You look good. I've accused you of faking cancer because you're always at the gym. Whenever I call you at the gym, I'm like, I see in these pictures. You're like, I see these pictures being every. You look great. I'm like, trying to ward off death. I've got to. I've got to exercise. Yeah, you look great. I mean, you really do. But yeah, so I don't. It, I, so I didn't choose to be United Methodist, and I don't know. I, very few people in my congregation chose to be United Methodist. Like they just chose to come to this church, and so I. I don't know that the United Methodist Church, which is now at this impasse over issues of sexuality. I don't know that it will get through them um, because unlike most Protestant denominations, uh, we are still a global church. And so when we gather to make decisions, you know, half the people in the room come from, uh, you know, the continent of Africa or South America or Asia where the idea of someone being, uh, you know, an uncloseted gay Christian is just not even a category they have. Um, so I, I don't know that, I don't know that, you know, Three years from now, there will be a United Methodist Church. So, does Methodism have like the kind of the Presbyterian kind of mainline problem too? Like it, you know, the thing that strikes me about Presbyterianism, it's a mainline form, is 
you could go to a church and it could look like Willow Creek, or you could go and it could look almost like uh, Episcopalian liturgically. It could be somewhere in the middle. It could be, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it doesn't breed much of a shared culture. Like, whereas if you're an Episcopalian, theologically you're all about, but yeah, you're all using the same prayer book. You know uh, I mean? uh-huh. Yeah, you're a Roman Catholic. You're, you know, you you could be all over the map. You know, like you could be a Catholic worker. You could be a Rick Santorum family values Catholic. But everybody, there's some shared liturgical and symbolic culture that if you're Methodist, it could be something that's, you know, very sacramental liturgical or it could look like Willow Creek. Yeah, I I think that's our main problem is we don't have anything that unites us theologically. Um, We don't, we we give, I mean, we speak about our Wesleyan heritage, but I don't know that that is, that doesn't really unite us. I think we grew up alongside tent revivals and Baptist churches and Episcopal churches, you know, as we spread across the country. And I think that, you know, as a result, like we have this diversity that with nothing really holding us together except administrative functions. But you've written some things, right? Some of the renewal people all over the church have said some salutary things about some stuff you've written. recently. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A couple weeks ago, I don't know if this is what we're talking about. So like my secretary, like came in my office and she's like, Maxie Dunham is on the phone for you. And I was, and I had just preached a sermon about why we need to welcome gay Christians into the congregation because we've baptized them. Um, and I was like, oh shit, this guy who is like the leader of the confessing church movement and, and all that, like Mr. Conservative in the Methodist church. I was like, he's going to dress me down and then like out me to my bishop. Uh, and he, he, all he did was like express appreciation for me. Um, and asked if I could come to Memphis and visit him sometime. It, he was the nicest, warmest guy in the world. Like I really, I mean, Jesus has a sense of humor, I guess, because it really threw me for a loop. Were you like, look, I don't know. I'm a cancer survivor. I don't know if I can fly away to Tennessee just on a whim it's for, for you. Do you ever pull that with your wife? Like, if she's on your back, are you like, look, I just got over cancer? I, I do. She, oh, man, it drives her crazy. Like, that, you win every fight, right? At one point, you just drop cancer. Cancer, bro. The C word. It's really, I don't know if I've told you this before, but it's really hard because, like, I, I go to see people in the hospital now, um, now that I'm back to work, and, like, every conversation has to begin with, well, it's nothing like what you've gone through, you know? And I'm like, like you, you're dying. That's real. Own it. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it makes ministry harder in some ways. But marriage easier. <laughs> um, you no, know, it does. I, it does. It is interesting how, um, how quickly things can return to normal, you know, that like you want to be able to say, oh, well, here's my bucket list and I've learned to appreciate things and I want to spend more time with my children. And then bam, you're like right back into your old routine. You're, you are also one of the more theological pastors I know. And I, I say that because, I mean, you know, right, there's a lot of pastors that just don't read theology. They don't write theology. Yeah. They don't talk much, think about it much. And you really care about theology and serious theology. I mean, your robust, you know, Christology and, and, and eschatology. I mean, you, you do a lot of writing about some weighty topics. Has that always been who you are? Or do you think it was some of the health stuff? Has it, is that crystallized it or intensified it i think i think thinking that i was going to die knowing that i will die prematurely quote unquote um has sharpened it yeah um but in the same way that i seek humor as like a defense mechanism i know that i stay in my head as a way of avoiding becoming emotionally vulnerable um so like that's that's the the one side of me that i've always preferred to stay in my head and theology has been an attractive escape in that sense. 
but at the same time, like I know, you know, I mean, Christianity above all is, you know, it's a language and, you know, it's my job to teach people how to speak it properly. Um, and as, you know, a cancer patient and just as a pastor who sees other patients, I, I know how bad Christian speech does real damage in people's lives. Um, so it's more than just an esoteric exercise, I think. What kind of speech do you think it does damage to people? Um, well, I mean, to get back to like the God, death, sin thing, I, I, I really do think that um, this, uh, you know, hyper-Calvinist notion that God is, you know, the chief active agent behind everything in the world, like the direct cause. Um, and so, you know, I got cancer. Why is God doing this to me? I, I think that that's profoundly uh, unhelpful uh, to people. And, and, and it doesn't bear any resemblance to the world that the New Testament gives us where, you know, Paul talks about creation being in captivity uh, to something other than God. Um, and so I, I think we have to remember that, like, you know, we're still, you know, in a creation that is being, you know, is pulled between, you know, the, the activity of God and the activity of, of, you know, sin and death with capital S and capital D. Yeah, that kind of hyper it, it kind of, it, it, it removes the category of evil, mm-hmm. right? Because evil just becomes an extension of God in a way that it, it's just, you can't make sense of that in the Bible. No, and it, it, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just an overly realized eschatology, I, I think. I, I, it's just, um, and, and so, I mean, that kind of, da- that, that, that kind of stuff does, does real damage um, to people. Um, most of the people I meet who have sworn off church, it's because of, you know, something they've heard or something they, they think they've heard um, from another Christian. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that that's, I, I appreciate your commitment to that. And I wonder also, like, how has the podcast shaped your theological development? Because you're talking to a lot of theologians and thinkers and writers, and you're ta- f- with frequency. I mean, how, how has that it's been, shaped you? It's been helpful. So, like, for Eastertide, we did a series of dialogue sermons here. Um, every week. And I don't know, last year, at least a few years ago, I would not have wanted to do those. I would have wanted them to be overly scripted and prepared. Um, but now because of the practice of the podcast, I am comfortable just kind of winging a conversation, uh, theologically in front of people. Um, and it's been really, it's been a really good kind of realization to know that I can, I don't always follow, you know, what our guests are talking about perfectly but i'm able to keep up um and so like that's been it's been nice to know that like oh my gosh i can at least do batting practice with you know the triple a guys um and, and that's i mean i can't keep up with scott jones um that's because that, if, if you could you'd be insane like, or that bill a, that bill Moore guy sanity. that you uh, <laughs> talk to a lot <laughs> that's um, funny yeah, bill's great but you know like and like the, the fascinating thing about like a podcast is that like there's a whole community of people out there who listen and give us feedback for whom, and I'm sure it's the same with your podcast, like for whom this is their primary like theological community. Um, that there's something about the content of like how we talk about it and the content of who, like who we talk with um, that they can't find in church. Um, and so it's, it's been a, interesting to discover these people. Yeah. And I think the nature of the medium, right? People, because it's an intimate medium, mm-hmm. you know, like you can actually, you know, James Corden was on Howard Stern, and he was talking about how 
the reason he did carpool karaoke was because he's like, you know how I come in here and within 35 seconds in the studio, I forget that millions of people are listening, you know, we're just having a conversation. But this, we couldn't have this if 150 people were going, when you walk on the stage, just couldn't. So he tried to get people in the car to connect with them. But because the medium is so intimate, people probably have a sense of knowing you because they've listened to you talk with Mm -hmm. people about Mm -hmm. things you care about and joke with them and ask them questions and have interesting exchanges. And so like, I think that the kind of bond between the podcaster and the listener is it's a unique kind of connection because they, they, because it's such a long form medium and because it's, it's, if, if, if you get, you know, the sound is good. You're kind of, you feel like you're part of it sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's funny. I, I remember Robert Dykstra at Princeton seminary, um, who, is one of my kind of Jedi masters. And I remember him pointing out one time in a counseling class that if you want to get men to open up to you, the best uh, way to do that is to drive somewhere with them. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. because men will share things when they're, you're both facing the same direction that they would never share face-to-face. Yeah. And I think that's most definitely true. And I, and I think there's something about that that the podcast kind of overlaps with. Who, do you, who has been, as far as guests... You know, what was, who, who, who's over the past year, like what have been the highlights? What have been the highlights? Yeah. Who have been uh, the guests that stand out? Um, <laughs> it's funny. So we end every podcast with asking the 10 questions from inside the actor's studio. And I don't know if like we owe someone royalties for doing that. Um, but it's not like we're using like famous pop songs as segues or anything. So I think we're good. Um, you know why you can't use uh, music? I just read this this morning, an article on some podcast Mm-mm. group. Like you and I could, if we want to do a streaming radio service, mm-hmm. we could pretty inexpensively get licenses to play anything that's on the radio, right? Mm. But the, because it's a recorded, it's a recording that then other people are downloading as a physical recording. It's like dubbing a tape. Ah, uh, that's interesting. So the idea is that if you're streaming it, people probably aren't recording it, or they're not. It, it's not legal for them to record mm-hmm. it. Then, but just by nature of the medium, you've already the whole medium is about physical recordings, yeah, yeah. physical recordings. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, I, so we asked the like the ten questions, and for some people, like that's been the most um, kind of revealing. And I've played with the idea of starting there because um, sometimes that's where the conversation is best. But just uh, last week, uh, we talked with Fleming Rutledge, who we do a like a, a regular set with um called fridays with fleming um and so i asked her the last question um what do you want to hear god say when you arrive um and at first she was like oh gosh i don't know and then she bent her head down um like she was like praying and then she started just you know saying you know like listing things that she wants to hear god say and you know like well done good and faithful service but then servant but then she was like oh no i don't even want to hear god say well done She's like, maybe just to have my name called. Um, and she looked up at me and she had been crying. Mm. And then she just kind of like mm. nodded her head. And, and it was this incredibly like pregnant, important moment where you could just feel coming off of her face how important her faith is to her. Um, You've developed a really special relationship with her. I mean, I just, I mean, I've interviewed her once, but I, and I've seen her, heard her interview other places. I mean, she is different with you. I mean, she, she, uh, there's some, she's a little more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. She's a little more introspective. You know, I mean, you can, I mean, I think that, and I, this is not a criticism, I just think anybody that's an author 
It gets talked with a lot. I mean, it's easy for them to be on their talking points. Mm -hmm. And when she does your show, she's not on her talking points. Um, she's she genuinely is telling you, speaking from a place of you know authenticity and conviction. You know, it's just it's very refreshing to with anybody. I mean, you know, yeah. to develop a relationship like that, but especially with somebody of her kind of theological acumen. Yeah, I, I've I've talked with other people about how I have this sense of anticipatory grief that uh, I won't be able to do that with her at some point. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been important to me, you know, and I think it's important for like the larger society and the larger church to like model this kind of genuine relationship between an old person and a not as old person. And, and, and it's good for me to like, I feel good about letting her feel useful, even in, you know, at the age of 80, that this has given her an outlet, um, because, you know, traveling and working and all that is harder for her, she says. Um, but just conversation that can then be made available to thousands of people like that's a whole different thing you know and she does something i appreciate i mean she doesn't play the tradition off of contemporary biblical studies mm -hmm. which i think is a lot of what happens in a lot of theological conversations today it's sort of the biblical studies people play over against the classical tradition and she does a good job integrating those things and, and, and not having a tortured antagonistic relationship you know in which she thinks and talks about that stuff yeah, and I think it's also because, you know, she has progressive viewpoints, but she is not progressive, but she is not, you know, so many of the well-known women in the church are kind of from the non-denominational evangelical world, and she doesn't really fit into that either. Um, and so I think it's refreshing that she's, she, you know, she's a both and neither nor kind of person, which I That's guess, I, which I guess is what I, I resonate with most uh, about how I think about my, my own vocation. It's both and more than either or. Yeah, I read this great essay talking about that recently on the ascension it was on the mockingbird website you should check it out did i write that you did you did write that <laughs> i did you did oh. but, <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> yeah i forgot that i did write. he he is faking his laughter right now no is it the one not the one i just wrote is there something i wrote it was in what you just wrote about the ascension oh uh, it was Oh, I Something forgot. About, I, 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 it was like a Richard Rohr quote about like the mature oh, about the believer. Both and neither. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is good. Yeah. I think I'm going to steal it for my baccalaureate sermon I have to write, which I, I, I loathe these things so much. And they go against everything I believe as like a good, you know, I don't even know, closet Mennonite. But yeah, I'm going to I'm going to take it from you. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I think the either or should have a possibility of giving way to the both end. Like I think of mm -hmm. someone like Carl Barth, right? Mm -hmm. Who, who, who seems very either or uh, on some level tonally and even in content, but yet there's this generosity and you read like the end of the church dogmatics. He's talking about the, you know, other words and other lights in the world. And so the, the, it's an either or that opens up to a both ends. And I yeah, think that's, I, that's the best of that. I think there's something like with Bart, I think it's that Bart is so confident in God's final yes to creation and Jesus Christ, that Bart is not threatened in any way. And so when he does say no, he can do so with charity. Yeah, he can fold humor. it back in. He can find, mm -hmm. he can generally find parts of the truth, even in, you know, people he's in a, in a kind of antagonistic oppositional relationship, yeah, I mean, the, which is part of what I, the, the, I the, like. The exclusivism of some Christians is so so I don't even know what the right word is. So ven venomous sometimes it makes you wonder if they really believe what it is they're pushing. <laughs> yeah. You know, that like they have this anxiety that's unspoken that maybe it's not true. 
Yeah, and sometimes, you know, it's really interesting. I was talking, actually, I'm on the podcast. It's got Jace Broadhurst. Too. I want to connect you guys, too, because he's in the D.C. area. And you, oh. he's a pastor, theologian, guy like you. He's an Old Testament scholar. You guys would get along with him. But he was saying something about why people like somebody like John MacArthur, evangelical mm. in California. And it's because MacArthur is certain on everything. Like, he's got a certain opinion on everything. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people, in, in a, so often, so much of our world, right, feels so out of control Mm-hmm. that kind of falling in behind something like that, it's just a form of anxiety management. I, I think so. And I think there's a difference between certainty and conviction. Right, right. And not just conviction, but clarity. You know, I, I think, and you, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you know this as well as I do, that I think there's something about the way seminary trains pastors where you have this very kind of thin, shallow exposure to historical critical method and, and, and you know, modern biblical studies. And so I think it induces this kind of epistemological crisis in preachers um, where they don't have the confidence to proclaim their convictions with clarity. Um, yeah. And, you know, yeah. and like, if so if, if that's like the dominant choice in the mainline church is kind of amorphous things that you can't really grab hold to. I can see, you know, over here, John MacArthur is giving you like clear certainties. Um, I, I, can, I can see the attraction of that. Yeah, but I think you're right. You can have conviction without, and still have a sense of humility and and some priorities about. Hey, I can I can know the you know I can it, it's again the guy's just certain about everything about mm-hmm. every <laughs> it's just fascinating. So okay, so we talked about Fleming. Who else over there? I mean, you. you it was funny because you. I remember you had David Bentley Hart on, and you were like, uh, you know, I remember you in my class. He's like, I'm sorry, I don't remember. <laughs> uh, no, so it's like it's been a really great. Um, it's been a really great experience for me to realize, you know, so I, I have, you know, David Bentley Hart is an idol of mine and was my teacher when I first started as a student. Um, most of my, how I understand the faith and my vocation as a minister has been formed by the work of Stanley Harawas, who I did not meet um, personally until this year. Um, didn't he write like a shitty uh, endorsement for the book <laughs> wrote, or something? He like he didn't even one. read the book. <laughs> he didn't read the book. And then he came to preach at my church and someone was like, oh, here's Jason. He just came back from having cancer. And I could see the gears working in his head where he just like barely remembered having received this book. But after after we met and we became friends, he went back to his office and read the book in a day, he said. And he sent me back a really thoughtful review. Um and he's he emails me a couple times a week now, and so it's it's been really great and edifying to see these people that you know whose work has shaped me that they're genuine, warm people. Um, I haven't I haven't met one charlatan doing the podcast yet. Um, not one. That not one. Not one. Not 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 one that we've posted. <laughs> <laughs> what was the worst like podcast experience? Like what like. What was like? You're like, oh gosh, we totally like. I, uh, I so in this, all right. So this betrays my liberal, you know, prejudice that I, there was this one priest who's a Native American, cool ponytail, all that, and I just projected all sorts of things onto him because of how he looked. Um, and I was like, oh, he'll be super interesting, and he'll want to talk about social justice and you know, indigenous cosmology and all this stuff. And and he was the least interesting person I've ever spoken to. <laughs> Not just on the podcast, but like literally like the most boring human being I've ever had a conversation with. That didn't make the air. No, and he 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 really he had no thoughts about anything. Um, so it was terrible. 
So, like, give me an example of a question you asked him, and he just didn't say anything. Oh, I, oh my gosh, I don't even remember now. That was like right when it we was started. that unmemorable. It was that he left that bad impression. I mean, it 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 was hard for us to stretch it out to twenty minutes of just total time. <laughs> it was it was awful, and I and it was just because I assumed he was going to be interesting because of what he looked like. Um, so that was I mean that in itself was a helpful lesson. Is there is somebody looking like on the horizon? A big big reveal, big reveal coming on. Uh, I've been like exchanging emails with Cornell West about him coming on. Oh wow! So that nice. would be yeah, and that's been like our, uh, the biggest critique that we've had um, is the is a perceived lack of diversity in our guests, um, and part of that's not not because we haven't tried, um, but we had a lot of people not want to commit to us, um, and like just the larger church world's pretty. It's you know pretty male and pretty white. Um, I had a PhD seminar. Uh, with Cornel West, it was amazing. It was on Hegel and his influence. So he and Jeff Stout. Hmm. Was I, I've never. I don't know that I've ever sat in a classroom with somebody that had more access to their bibliography. Like everything he's ever read, it's like he can access it mm-hmm. like he'd read it yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it's just remarkable. I mean, it's just I, I was blown away. I mean, it's really. And he's a great guy. I mean, just but you like, can do that. You can do that. I, I, I like that. Not like that guy. That's <laughs> what I've noticed listening to your podcast is that you. I mean. It's not just that you're listening in real time to what people say, but you're able to pull something out of your memory uh, of substance um, that is relevant. Who are you reading these days? Like, what what are you reading that's that has got you excited? Um, so I'm reading Richard Ford's memoir about his parents. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It's a real slim volume. I really like Richard. He's one of my favorite novelists, prose writers. So I'm reading that, and we uh, this weekend are starting like a summer long sermon series through the Book of Romans, and so I am, um, <laughs> I am steeped in New Testament apocalyptic uh, theology and biblical studies right now. So I, I just read through J. Lewis Martin's commentary on the Book of Galatians, which I just think is like one of the best books ever written. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's what I'm. That's just nerding out on apocalyptic theology. There, you're, there, and you got Fleming to be your guide. You know, she's uh, she's was steeped in that stuff. She yeah. studied with Becker, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. did Bill Bohr. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Bill spent a lot. Bill almost did a PhD in New Testament studies. Becker was something, man. He was a wild man. I mean, he's a very interesting dude, I hear. But just brilliant. And uh, like Beverly Gaventa, her she has a new book called When in Romans. It's this thin little volume, and it's uh, I read it without stopping on a plane ride to Oklahoma City. Wow, I mean, there's not a lot of scripture commentaries you can say that about. No, what did now? What made you do a sermon series? Do you guys follow the lectionary in your church? I mean, you do a lectionary podcast with Crackers and Grape Juice, but do you do you like? Was that? We, how did you? How did you decide that? Uh, we. So my friend and podcast partner Taylor, he wanted to do a lectionary podcast, and I thought it was a good idea. Um, especially, especially. Uh, after the one you were doing, kind of stopped posting because so many of the lectionary podcasts seem to get stuck in. Well, this is you know the historical critical consensus. The text has to mean this, and I think that's debilitating to preachers. Oh uh, yeah, I, I, I in general, I think people. You're right. I think a lot of people there in biblical studies wind up doing them, and I think they're yeah. I don't think they're helpful. No, I mean not every not every text can be just a witness to power or empire like every Sunday. That's just not helpful. Um, and and it doesn't have the same freedom that the church fathers had with with the text, um, and so I think it's very flat and and 
paralyzing to preachers. Um, so I don't know. I, I like the lectionary. I, for years here, we've done like sermon series, which were in vogue, I think, you know, in the aughts. Um, but I, I, I don't like that they kind of predetermine the conclusion of the sermon before you even started writing it. Yeah, yeah. And I think they just assume that everyone's coming every Sunday, and I know that's definitely not the case. Um, and so it's better, you know, to just, I think, stay with the arc of the Bible. But I have found when we have done just a book of the Bible from beginning to end, my preaching has been much better for it because I'm kind of studying the same thing for an extended yeah. period of time. I'd like to continue, man. It's the way to go, I think. Yeah. And some of the lectionaries like that in ordinary time. You get to kind of continue it. Fashion. But yeah, I think it's great. I mean, it's... Uh, and Romans, man, I mean, you know, what better stuff to, to work through? I I would argue with anyone, and, and I know this is not popular to say in my own denomination, but I do think the book of Romans is the most important book of the New Testament. You, it's a very, uh, I mean, it's a legitimate thing to argue, I think. And, I, and what I, it's funny, because I, I, what I think people miss is that, you know, and maybe this is a deficiency in the church, is that, like, you have to, like, it's not the the letters of Paul are secondary to the Gospels. It's that you have to interpret the Gospels through the letters of Paul because the Gospels are not self-interpreting and their meaning is not self-evident. Yeah, Paul also says that the Apostle Paul uh, taught what Jesus lived. Like, mm-hmm. his doctrine of grace is mm-hmm. the application of the story of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That they're not incompatible. Pope Benedict says something very similar to in his Jesus books, which, for my money, are the best books on the Gospels I've read in a long time. How's your health? My health is... Uh... It's, I mean, I think it's good. I have a scan coming up this coming month, so we'll see. And you're still doing chemo regularly? Uh, one day a month, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I I don't know if I told you, I preached about this. Like, I, my doctor went on leave for a recurrence of cancer of his own. And so I on Ash Wednesday, I met with uh, a, a new doctor with a much different demeanor. And he... Um, you know, he took this box of latex gloves and he flipped it over and he drew the standard deviation like bell curve uh, for the years I can expect until a relapse. Um, and, you know, it was this really sobering moment. And I left that appointment and I drove to a different hospital to see someone in my congregation who's about my age and who got cancer around the same time I did. And he thought he was in the clear, but it came back. And so I'm sitting there with him in his room. And, you know, when I came in, a palliative care doctor had been talking to him and then I sat with him for a while and then a social worker came in to give him this book, you know, where he was like a fill in the blank kind of book so that like his young son um, will know who his dad was when, when he grows up kind of thing. And so I let, and you know, so we're sitting there and he's crying and then the, the chaplain comes in dressed like an undertaker um, and then imposes ashes on us and says, you know, two dust you were made and two dust shall return and, so it was this incredibly like pregnant moment where we just mortality was just you know omnipresent and and he died as I was pulling into the church parking lot on Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Jason, you uh, are a gift. Uh, you, uh, I forget that you, I forget sometimes that you have a looming reality like that because you're a joyful person. I mean, you're, you you're generally a genuinely. Uh, I I remark to my wife a lot of the funny things you say and just your sense of humor and you're you're just a very hopeful guy and I I, I feel like that's a, a gift of grace to all of us who know you. So well, I mean, yeah, I should have counted you. I mean, like I didn't interview you, but you interviewed me, and it's like this magic of the podcast. I now count you as one of my good friends. Ditto. The feelings mutual, man. 
So well, thanks for doing this and be my 25th guest. And everybody should subscribe to your podcasts. And but in your heart, I'm your first, right? Exactly, exactly. So, like, but, if you if you can go back and, and like become a virgin again, does that mean <laughs> I, I can go back and be the first episode? Exactly, exactly. It's this is one of this. What is that called? The the the, the people do the 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 progress the pure or whatever. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's, I don't, yeah, that's, yeah. Well, it certainly won't be your last uh, true love. Appearance. No, you know, I was thinking a great sermon title on you know Romans three would be true love doesn't wait. <laughs> God's prevenient grace. I love it. I love it. Everybody get the book. Cancer is funny. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great check it out spread the love and goodness if you've found it here also if you could go please 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 it takes like 60 seconds go to itunes and write a review and give it give a rating to the podcast it really really helps especially as things are getting off the ground and do check out jason's book cancer is funny and listen to his podcast crackers and grape juice which you can find in itunes or wherever else you get your podcast thanks again for listening and until next time Fare thee well.